I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my thoughts on money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I am Trevor Cummings, your host of the podcast and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. And I am here in Newport Beach all by myself today. Well, I guess I'm not by myself. I have uh, my colleague Brian Tong here recording our podcast, but I will be speaking to you uh, without my normal partner in crime, Mr. Sean Latimer, who is in Las Vegas today um, at the Freedom Fest conference, listening to none other than David Bonson speak on a couple different panels. So I wrote an article, speaking of Sean Latimer, that was inspired by him. On our last podcast, he asked me a really good question. And it was kind of in the midst of a discussion we were having about the rise in interest rates. And I could see in his face when he asked me the question, it kind of like something sparked his curiosity. Leaned in, cocked his head, and he was just kind of like, hey, does this change in interest rates, um, meaning the the yield on bonds is higher, um, change your perspective, Trevor, um, around expense-based planning? Now, that term may not be familiar to you because I coined the term, and I I wrote an article. um, I think I called the article uh, Methods of Madness or something of that nature. I I linked to it in in this article, um, which I called Expense-Based Planning Revisited. Um, But essentially, expense-based planning uh, is this format or methodology that I came up with for how I like to do uh, portfolio design for clients. And to give a little bit of background here, most of the industry goes about it this way. Um, Somebody comes on board as a new client with a financial advisor. That advisor hands them a risk survey, whether that's on paper or digital. Uh, The client fills out that risk survey that's intended to try to get an idea of what that person's tolerance is for volatility, the ups and downs of uh, market prices. Once the advisor has that risk survey. They then go look at a list of model portfolios and they match the model portfolio that best fits that particular risk survey. And then they place the clients in those investments. And then their financial plan has some return assumptions based on history for that particular model portfolio. Now, I I know a lot of financial advisors. I used to work for an organization that had 16,000 advisors. So I've seen a lot of different approaches and methodologies, but that was kind of the norm that I saw. I have a lot of issues with that approach. Uh, So I wrote this article on expense-based planning to kind of say, hey, here's my perspective uh, and here's how I do it differently and kind of why I've rejected that traditional approach. Now we'll call that traditional approach a three-step approach because we said that there's a risk survey that's completed and then a model portfolio to match that risk tolerance and then a financial plan built on return assumptions for that model portfolio. And let me give you some of my critiques. And ultimately on this podcast, I will circle back and answer Sean's question if the rise in yields has changed my perspective about this methodology. But let me give you the context first. So risk surveys, they are difficult for clients to understand. And let me say it this way. Maybe the risk survey is only five or 10 questions. Those questions are not always fully understand for the weight that they will carry. 
Meaning, if I received a risk survey and I, I, I knew nothing of the such of what this would be used for, um, I might kind of just fill it out. Maybe I had uh, something goofy for breakfast and uh, my stomach was feeling uh, uneasy or maybe I had just gotten a fight with my spouse and I was a little bit emotionally torn or maybe I'm just having an off day. Um, and I don't realize that when I fill out that risk survey, that is going to determine the entire design of my portfolio that my financial plan is going to assume that's going to compound for many years that lead me into retirement. So I think, based on how important this survey is, that a lot of the time clients are not, how do I want to say it, fully appreciating um, the impact that that's going to have. So I think that is a heavy burden to put on the client And I probably am someone that is an advocate for using risk surveys as part of the process, but there has to be a very good dialogue and back and forth and understanding between the advisor and client to kind of get a general idea of tolerance. So I think starting with the risk survey and not um, being able to advise or guide your client through it can make things difficult. Now, that next step, because you started with risk tolerance, you will have some investors that kind of just tell you, hey, if you give me a choice between risky and not risky, I'll take you know what they might call conservative. Or maybe they're a little bit more well-versed and they say, hey, I know I can't be conservative, quote unquote. So you know, I'll just kind of pen myself down as, as moderate. Here's the problem. A conservative portfolio, everyone had to find that, or a moderate portfolio, everyone had to find that, might not deliver the rate of return that your financial plan needs. So if the order of operations is risk survey that carries a lot of weight, determines model portfolio, and then financial plans number three, um, you might go through that sequence and not build the appropriate portfolio to match the needs of the financial plan. So I think it's a little bit backwards there. Now, let me speak to that as well. One of the other big concerns that I have is most financial planning software, and I'm I'm not pointing the finger. I'm not saying this is somebody's fault. I'm just saying that this is a reality. But most financial planning software is going to take like the last 100 years of financial market data And they're going to use that for future return assumptions. Here's the problem. The environment we're in today, um, whether you want to talk taxes, inflation, uh, stock market valuations, it might not be, actually, let me just say that in a more uh, aggressive manner. It is not uh, a reflection of what the quote unquote average hundred years has looked like. So, Going in and making an assumption that maybe your stocks are going to get a 10% return and making an assumption that your bonds are going to get a 5.5% rate of return, that is this idea of possibly over-promising and under-delivering the opposite of what you'd want to do as a financial advisor. I think an advisor should be very thoughtful on what those rate of return assumptions are, and you should be able to back into those assumptions with some reasonable math or some reasonable ideas of valuation. Here's an easy example. Well, hopefully it's easy. Um, If I'm going to place half of a client portfolio in bonds 
and those bonds are yielding 3%, I probably don't want to put an assumption that those bonds are going to get greater than a 3% return. Now, you could you could argue that maybe you could take that up to 35 or 4%, but you'd have to be arguing that interest rates are going to rise to accommodate for that. But you can't just plug in 5 or 6% rate of return if it's not justifiable from a math perspective that that allocation will actually deliver that result. So again, if we go into this three-step sequence where, hey, I felt this risk survey that I don't realize how much weight this is actually going to carry, I get plugged into a model portfolio that matches the tolerance of that risk survey, and now I'm in a financial plan that's using the last 100 years to assume what future rates of return are going to be. To me, you are compounding some issues in that sequence of portfolio design that I think can be detrimental to somebody's financial health. So if I'm going to go out and reject the idea of what we just called that three-step process, I have to come up with a solution. So when I originally wrote this article on expense-based planning, I didn't have to think too much for kind of what I wanted to call it, that, that term expense-based planning. You, as a listener, I'm, I'm hoping it's intuitive, is all of the planning is based on what your actual expenses are. So let me walk you through how I'm kind of laying out the methodology of expense-based planning. You and I sit down, uh, you're my fictitious client, and we determine that you have $5 million in investment assets. I just choose an easy round number. And we decide, based on your expenses, that you're probably going to spend about $200,000 a year. Well, that's easy math. 200000 is 4% of $5 million. Fairly normal financial plan that you'd have a 4% withdrawal rate. Now, here's where expense-based planning comes in. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to try to build a moat, protections, safety nets around your withdrawals. Yeah, we're going to assume that you spend $200,000 a year. So we're going to say, hey, let's figure out how many years of reserves. Again, we could use different terms. We could call it reserves or safety net or backup plan, whatever. How many years of that $200,000 do we want to make sure that we protect? That way... If the whole world is blowing up and everything feels unfriendly, you have this bucket of money that will satiate your expense and withdrawal needs for some defined time period. So anytime I talk to somebody about expense-based planning, I'm saying, hey, it starts with the reserves bucket, and you have to speak about that reserves button bucket as a multiple of expenses. So my fictitious uh, client here, has $5 million, they're going to spend $200,000 a year. And through discussion, we decide, hey, for that person, they really want to make sure they have about four years of reserves set aside. To them, that helps them feel comfortable that um, if, if all chaos was breaking loose, they could kind of tap this reserve tank um, and it would quote-unquote, buy them four years for things to somewhat normalize. So we can do that math in our head. We can take uh, $200,000 and we can times it by four, and now we've just placed $800,000 in this reserves bucket. Um, 
Now, there'll be additional safety nets if you go read the article on expense-based planning. Uh, we will look at the dividends and interest that is generated by uh, the total portfolio. We will look at the access to lines of credit. Uh, and we will look at these other things that create redundancies, positive redundancies, so that if things got really unfriendly, there would be more than one fire exit that a client could choose to um, resource. Now, this is very different than starting with risk tolerance. What we started with is saying, hey, let's make sure there is sufficient reserves. Now, once we've defined that, for some clients, it'll be a few years. For some clients, it'll be five years. Again, this is a, a deep and meaningful dialogue that might be multiple meetings between the advisor and client. Now, we know that not the entire nest egg is going to be set aside in reserves. So whatever the surplus above and beyond for our fictitious client, it was a, it was a significant amount of money, right? We said $800,000 in reserves. It was a $5 million total. So then all of a sudden there's 4.2 million other dollars that we're going to do something with. And again, for simplicity, we're just bifurcating into two categories. We've defined one called reserves and then the other one we're going to call growth. Um, and I put some images uh, on the article so you can kind of get an idea of, of what that would actually look like. Now, in this growth bucket, um, our objective is different. In the reserves, we wanted stability. In the growth bucket, we want wealth accumulation. We want long-term growth. We want compounding. Now, if you're a client of mine, you will often hear me say this is that what do most investors want? They want stability and they want growth. They can have one, but they can't have both. Investors want stability and growth. They, they can have one, but they can't have both. What I'm saying there is you're not going to find the uh, at the end of the rainbow that special investment that comes with stable prices and uh, meaningful returns. So by bifurcating these two different buckets of money, you can define two very different objectives. You can define reserves to have stability and liquidity, meaning, hey, I need this money to have stable prices and be very, very accessible in case that Armageddon moment happens. Then I don't have to put that burden on the other bucket of money. The other bucket of money doesn't have to have stable prices. It doesn't have to have that same liquidity. I can allow volatility and some illiquidity to happen in that other bucket in exchange for long-term growth. So again, the, the idea of the risk survey approach leading to a model portfolio, leading to a financial plan, it was try. It was trying to, to make sure that you found a portfolio that was tolerable for an investor. For expense-based planning, it's different. Um, you first start to make sure that the reserves are sufficient so that that knowledge and that reality will help the investor tolerate how the other money behaves. And if they're able to do that bifurcation in their mind of these two buckets – I believe it does lead to better investor behavior. So then what happens when you get to the financial plan? 
Well, the return calculations and the expected returns should look a lot different because most savers have done a really good job at accumulating a sizable nest egg. And if you relate that nest egg back to their expenses, typically that nest egg is going to dwarf their expenses. So this approach of expense-based planning, in some sense, does allow clients to put more money in that growth bucket from an from a percentage standpoint, um, which, again, once you get to the financial plan, one would assume that that should deliver a higher expected rate of return than trying to balance the portfolio based on somebody's opinion of their own tolerance levels. Now, this is a concept that's pretty difficult to explain over a podcast, and I would ask you to go to the article and kind of read through it so you can marinate on the methodology that I explained there, and I think that'll be helpful. Now, going back to what Sean's question was, and it was a good question, is Sean was saying, hey, when you wrote that expense-based planning article, it was in kind of, a, I think it was March of last year, and uh, interest rates were still ugly. If we remember going back even a year before that, in that COVID moment, the 10-year treasury was below 1%. So this idea of encouraging people to have essentially a, a, a lower allocation to reserves, it was really palatable. Um, when interest rates were kind of at a, a historical bottom. And what Sean's saying is that, hey, right now, if you can go out and buy corporate bonds or something of that nature and you're getting 4.5%, does that kind of throw your theory out the window and, and you can kind of go back to the old school three-step method? Uh, and the answer for me is no. What has changed in the last 12 months since I wrote Expense-Based Planning is inflation has become much more significant, right? Uh, we can't go to a, a, a news website without some headline telling us that prices today are a lot more expensive than they were a year ago. And, and whether that is uh, at the gas pump or whether we're buying a new vehicle uh, or whether we're meeting with our landlord to discuss what um, our rent is going to be over the next 12 months. So from an expense-based planning standpoint, what has changed is the type of things that I would advocate to put in that reserves bucket, thing like government treasuries or investment-grade corporate bonds um, or even maybe uh, agency mortgages or, or something of that nature. Those things are having yields twice as high as when I originally wrote the article, and you need that. Because the most recent inflation print on a year-over-year -year basis is something like 9%. So this rise in interest rates for your reserves has given you some relief to the rise in prices and expenses of your everyday living. But I'll tell you, if you grab your calculator and you sit down with a pen and pencil, you're going to figure out that that rise in interest rates isn't even fully accommodating to make up for the rise in prices that we're experiencing. The other thing that I think is important to remember, um, and again, you can go see what average corporate bond uh, yields are or that nature, but if we're talking about something in the 4% range or 4.5% range, in my world, in my paradigm, and I mentioned this in the article, in order for something to qualify to be in that growth bucket, 
Um, and again, I arbitrarily or somewhat arbitrarily chose this number. It's just kind of a, a, a hurdle rate. But I believe that a reasonable person has to expect that the investment you're going to put in that growth bucket um, could, over the next decade, annualize at 7%. Why 7%? It's easy to do math. If you get 7% on a 10-year basis, uh, you're doubling the value. So when I build a list of criteria of, hey, um, what type of investments in my world, in my perspective, would qualify to be in the growth bucket, um, they have to achieve that 7 plus percent. Are you going to guarantee that as advisor? Absolutely not. But what I'm saying is you have to do that reasonable person test. You have to say, hey, would a reasonable person believe that X investment could generate this expected return? And when I say reasonable, I mean that you have to do some light and general valuation to work to say, oh, that can make sense. Like the probabilities on that are supported by history based on the the current valuations. If you came to me and you said, hey, today a 10-year treasury pays 3% and I'm going to put it in the growth bucket and I'm going to put it in the financial plan that it's going to get a 7% return, I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to challenge you that there's a really, really low probability that a 10-year treasury is going to do that based on the starting yields today. So again, back to Sean's question, um, it doesn't so much change my approach to expense-based planning. What it does do is it does increase the yield of those reserves as it's needed for where inflation is today. But then I think it, it even puts the burden further on the advisor to be diligent in the research they do to figure out what in the world can qualify for what Trevor is calling the growth bucket. Because what you don't want to do is you don't want to concentrate your wealth in just one asset class. And that is the challenge we have at the Bonson Group. And we have an entire investment committee committed to doing this very thing is how do we find different sources of risk so that in our quote-unquote risk assets, we can be diversified. And I gave an example uh, in my graphic on the growth bucket. Um, it could, it could, and again, we're not going to clarify in this podcast what what is appropriate or what not, because this is a discussion with your financial advisor, but um, it could be things like real estate, could be things like publicly traded stocks, it could be things like private equity, it could be things like private loans. Again, the burden or the job or the responsibility or the stewardship that is on the advisor is to go out and to piecemeal those strategies within that growth bucket to generate the appropriate returns to meet the financial plan and to be diversified. So you can't just go out and kind of figure out, oh, I think this one asset class pencils, it meets the Trevor's, uh, you know, a reasonable person would believe uh, test. Uh, No, that's one part. You add that to your grocery list, uh, and then you move on to the next line item. You want a well-diversified growth bucket. The other thing, and I'll probably kind of close out with this, that I'll draw your attention to, is I would look at the underlying assumptions in your financial plan. Because 
one of the critiques that I made towards that traditional three-step process, it went something like this. I said, okay, you fill out a risk survey. And in that risk survey, you determine you never want to see your account go down more than 20%. And to you, you're like, whew, man, I'm, I'm being a little aggressive. Like, I am going to stretch myself and I'm going to be willing to take my million-dollar portfolio and I know it won't be easy, but I'm going to endure that at some point I'll get a statement that says 800000 and that, you know, in the world of personal finance is defined by 20% drawdown. Okay, I'll endure that. You filled out a risk survey. Your risk survey said that you would endure a 20% downside in kind of the, one of those quote-unquote worst-case scenario moments. Well, let's think about 2008. Um, and we'll use rough numbers, but from from peak to trough, uh, 2008 experience in the stock market, something like a 50% drawdown. So we know that that is um, historically feasible, like it's happened. So now we go back to your 20% that you're willing to endure. We know that 50% is kind of uh, within the realm of what the guardrails have showed in the past. So we say, well, if you only want to go down 20 then you can really only have 40% exposure to stocks, right? Because if if 40% of my money went down 50%, like a 2008 moment, then that's that that's hitting my 20% maximum target. Again, I, I put this in the article if I'm using too much uh, math uh, uh, from an audio standpoint. But again, I said I would only be willing to go down 20% in my risk survey. Now we go into the model portfolios. Model portfolios can only own 40% in stocks because uh, that's going to kind of max out my, um, my, uh, the capacity of my tolerance. Now I have 60% of my money that I have to put somewhere. So for this simple argument, let's just put it in bonds, right? Okay, so now I have 40% of my money in stocks because that ma- matches uh, my tolerance level. And I have 60% of my money in bonds. Now let's say my financial plan needed a 7% rate of return. Well, most institutions, whether you want to go on Vanguard's website or BlackRock's website or whatnot, you're not going to find many institutions that are giving an expected rate of return on stocks over the next 10 years of greater than 7%. So we use that number. That's probably the maximum that you'll find out there. So if I have 40% of my money that's going to give me a 7% rate of return, that's going to add 2.8% to my bottom line. Again, I know I'm doing a lot of math, but 7 times 4 is 28. So you can just say uh, 40% allocation to to stocks over the next decade. I'm going to do a return expectation of 7%. Okay, that adds 2.8% to my bottom line. Well, the other 60% is going to be in bonds. And and we know that whatever the interest rate is at the start um, is probably a pretty good predictor of what the returns will be over the next 10 years. So 60% of my money and something that's going to yield 3%, uh, 6 times 3 is uh, 18. So I get my 2.8 plus my 1.8. All of a sudden, I am at, and I have this in the uh, article you can look at, 4.6%. Three-step process, right? I filled out a risk survey. I thought I was being pretty brave by saying I'd be willing to go down 20%. Market history says that then the model portfolio can't allow for more than 40% in stocks. Expected rates of return then puts me at somewhere in the range of that 4.5% rate of return. But what did we miss there? The financial plan needed a 7% rate of return. That's a big deficit. 
you allow that deficit to compound over a lifetime, you're not going to meet the financial goals that you've set for yourself. Now, if you use this historical market returns, it might spit out the number that you want. And that's why I'm telling you to slow down. Look at the financial plan. Look at the return assumptions. Do those return assumptions match something that is reasonable? Most of the time that I've seen, they don't. And if I can say it this way, what bums me out is that the financial advisor that prepared that plan isn't going to have to deal with that burden. Um, Because ultimately, the investor is the one that's married to their money for life. Um, You might have a financial advisor for a season and another financial advisor for another season. The burden's on you, the investor. So I think it's just so important to pull the thread and to get an understanding of, hey, what do I own? What's a reasonable expectation for returns? And what returns do my financial plan say I actually need? If you go through that process, you'll probably end up in the same place that I did, where expense-based planning starts to make a whole lot more sense, where you design the portfolio based on your expense and withdrawal needs, which probably leads you to a place where you'll have to be a little bit more tolerant, but you'll have a willingness to tolerate or endure knowing that it's required by your financial plan to achieve that. And from a framing perspective, if you can see those reserves as the safety net, and every time I say safety net, I literally am thinking about like a trapeze, um, that, that it's just underneath you protecting you in case the, you, you're, you're, you, you lose grip. Right? Or sometimes I call it fire exits because I know that uh, when somebody designs a building, they're not just putting one fire exit because that might, might be where the fire is. They're, they're, they're doing these kind of redundancies to make sure that uh, there's a plan A, B, C, D. And again, um, that is the hope of expense-based planning is that from a risk management standpoint, you build in those redundancies and because – you are at the stage of building the blueprints next to the architect. It gives you that kind of relief um, because I'm a, a big believer that knowledge is power. And um, once markets mis- misbehave, because they will, you can kind of tell yourself, okay, perfect. They're allowed to misbehave within the growth bucket as long as I have the fortress around my reserves. And, and actually, they can misbehave for a pretty long time. Because my reserves allow me X amount of years, three years, four years, or whatever, for things to normalize. So there's a chance that that scenario plays out, markets are unfriendly, and you're like, okay, I'm going to go kind of stick my spigot in my reserve bucket and start to use that to satiate my withdrawal needs. Now, if you do that for a year and things are still feeling unsettled, you might have two or three or four more years built in to allow you time for that to normalize even further. And, and what I'll tell you, if you, you study market history, um, moments of chaos 
typically do normalize. Now, I don't want to say quickly because what quickly looks like uh, will be different to one person versus another. But um, as much as we're talking about recession and inflation today, uh, we were talking about a different topic one year ago, a different topic one year before that, and, and so on and so forth. So the revolving door of uh, market monsters is just a reality of being an investor. I threw a lot at you today. <laughs> I'll encourage you to go read the article, Expense-Based Planning, Revisited. I also have a link in there for uh, the original article that I wrote um, that'll be helpful, and that's called the, the Madness of Methods. It is my goal to try to place these things out here uh, to help you um, and to give you a better idea how to do your planning um, and to build confidence in your own financial knowledge and all those things. As much as I try, I'm not a perfect communicator, but I invite you to email me, tom at thebonsagroup.com. You probably have questions. You probably have comments. Uh, I'm happy to jump in and have a dialogue and see if our team can be a resource to you. I will ask you for a favor that you would rate the podcast five stars or preferred. Please leave comments on the podcast. And then um, the hope is that I will be back next week with more of my thoughts on money. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.